There's wallpaper in the bathroom of room 1105 at the Holiday Inn Express at 206 South West Temple in Salt Lake City, Utah. It has designs on it made up of random triangular shapes in blue, overlaying a gray, shaded background. Shapes that face all directions, lines that go every which way. Many of the triangles are complete, but some of them have lines and angles that don't intersect, don't connect, leaving gaps in the geometry. As I was taking in the atmosphere and feeling of room 1105, I couldn't help but think about Emmanuel David and how he must have felt that he never truly connected with this world, that in his mind he was well-intentioned, but his actions affected the lives of others, including his own children, and never led to a cohesive and whole doctrinal narrative. The room, where most of the David family spent their last living moments on this earth, feels strangely peaceful. I spent a night there recently alone, taking in its history, sights, and sounds. The room isn't overly inviting by any means, but I didn't feel as if there were some malevolent force that didn't want me to be there. I had lessons to learn from room 1105, and I soaked it in long enough to learn them. In August of 1978, one of the most tragic events in Salt Lake City's history happened in that room and just outside of it. I'm grateful for the positive experiences that I had growing up and that I, unlike the seven children of Emmanuel and Rachel David, was fortunate enough to live to adulthood and free of trauma. I never take joy in the tragedies of others, but I am thankful for the lessons their choices teach. In August of 1978, a particularly grim decade in the world of crime, culture, and cults was about to culminate. Many who grew up in Utah and in Salt Lake City and the surrounding area don't even know the story I'm about to tell, and I have many theories as to why that is. Hang on tight. This story is sad, interesting, and everything in between. Welcome to Saints and Sinners, True Crime and the History of the West, Episode 16, Bruce Meets Margit, The Conception of a Cult. Ground was broken on the Salt Palace Convention Center and Arena in Salt Lake City, Utah on Friday, March 10th, 1967. Coincidentally, on that very same morning, less than two blocks away, my parents were married, sealed in the Salt Lake City Temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Present were several dignitaries at the groundbreaking of the Salt Palace, not at my parents' wedding. One of those dignitaries present at the Salt Palace groundbreaking was Governor Cal Rampton, who would be governor of Utah until 1977. The Salt Palace would serve as a venue for sporting events, conventions, tractor poles, monster truck shows, scatoramas, and concerts, and would take up nearly two entire city blocks, from South Temple south to 200 South, and from 200 West east to West Temple. It opened on July 11, 1969, a little over a week before the Eagle landed on the moon as part of the Apollo 11 mission and Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin would take their first steps on the lunar surface. As a point of fact, the convention center would be the second structure in Salt Lake to bear the moniker Salt Palace. The first Salt Palace was constructed in 1899 and stood at 900 South between Main Street and State Street, essentially where the modern day Ken Garf body shop and part of the dealership are located today. This original first iteration Salt Palace sadly lasted just over a decade. 
It had a short, illustrious life and was a gathering place for dances, concerts, bicycle racing, very popular at that time, and various amusement park rides. The first Salt Palace came to an end when fire broke out on August 29, 1910, and the majority of the building was destroyed, making it a total loss. The Utah Jazz, part of the National Basketball Association, moved to Salt Lake City from New Orleans in 1979. The team would play its home games in the Salt Palace Arena, located near the south end of the Salt Palace Convention Center. It was from there that the great Hot Rod Hunley, the radio voice of the Utah Jazz, would now call games in Salt Lake City, like he had since the team's inception in New Orleans in 1974. Salt Lake and the Salt Palace Arena had already been home to the Utah Stars of the American Basketball Association from 1970 to 1976, but had spent the last three years without a pro basketball team in town. The city was excited for the return of pro basketball and the decade of the 80s would electrify fans as they watched greats like Thurl Big T Bailey, Bobby Hansen, Ricky Green, Adrian Dantley, Daryl Griffith, and Mark Eaton. Two new up-and-comers and eventual Olympic dream teamers and Hall of Famers would join the team during the 80s as well. The Utah Jazz select John Stockton of Gonzaga University. I'd like to say that I'm very excited at the possibility of playing with the Utah Jazz. As you can tell, first-round draft pick John Stockton has already made a big impression with his teammates. I had a chance to talk with the young man from Gonzaga University about that. I hope that I can help the team out as much as they think I'm going to. Uh, as a backup to Ricky Green, I just hope that I can come in and feel his shoes best my ability and uh, make it easier for the coach to give Ricky a rest when he needs it. The Utah Jazz select Carl Malone of Louisiana Tech. NBA draft day, you know, it brings out the most strong-hearted type of fan. And here at the Salt Palace today, well, it was no different. Excitement was the key word as 5,000 loyal jazz fans took a leave of absence from work this morning to watch firsthand the NBA draft. Utah Jazz is very happy to announce that we're going to bring a mailman. And to say the least, the choice of Carl Malone brought a thunderous roar of approval from the stands. The addition of John Stockton to the Utah Jazz in 1984, followed by the addition of Carl Malone, the mailman, in 1985, would bring an excitement to the Jazz that had not existed since the days of Pistol Pete Maravich. An excitement was brought to the city of Salt Lake as well. A young Michael Jordan would play in the Salt Palace Arena a handful of times during the 80s, when the Chicago Bulls came to town, and the great dynasties of the Celtics and Lakers would show their faces several times in Utah during that decade also. The team was really making a name for itself and solidified its place in Salt Lake City when the entrepreneur and car dealership owner, Larry Miller, would buy half of the team for $8 million in 1985, and Miller would purchase the other half of the franchise in 1986 for another $14 million. Literally less than one half block south of the Salt Palace Arena and across the street, in fact, the International Dunes Hotel was constructed in the early 1970s in Salt Lake City. It was there that one of the greatest tragedies the city has ever known would occur on a morning in early August of 1978. I attended a myriad of Utah Jazz games as a kid. 
I was fortunate to see them play several times in the Salt Palace before they made their move to the newly constructed Delta Center in 1991. On the way to several of those games at the Salt Palace, we would always pass by the Shiloh Inn, which sat at the southwest corner of 200 South and West Temple. As we would make our way to park in the parking garage at Crossroads Plaza, as we passed this hotel several times in my youth, my older brothers would tell of the tragedy that always sounded so horrendous and sad that as a child, I couldn't believe that it had actually happened. But it really did. I still can't believe it. It did happen, and I will tell the story. Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike that the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans born in this century, tempered by war. Our story begins in the year 1961. John Fitzgerald Kennedy began his first and only term as the 35th President of the United States on January 20th. And at the 33rd Annual Academy Awards on April 17th of that year, The Apartment, starring Jack Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine, and Fred McMurray, was awarded the Academy Award for Best Picture. Just because I wear a uniform, that doesn't make me a Girl Scout. Miss Kubelik, one doesn't get to be a second administrative assistant around here unless he's a pretty good judge of character. And as far as I'm concerned, your tops, I mean, decency-wise and otherwise-wise. <laughs> Cheers. Charles Bruce Longo would turn 23 years old on November 9, 1961. Earlier that year, he was attending Brigham Young University, where he met a young Swedish woman named Margit Eriksson, who had joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Sweden at the age of 18. She had been baptized by a young missionary by the name of Gordon Riddle, who remembers her as being soft-spoken, unskeptical, agreeable, and kind. She was not one who would challenge everything, Riddle said, referring to Eriksson. Margit was one year Longo's junior when they met and began dating, she had decided to attend Brigham Young University, or BYU, in Provo, Utah, for the promise of America and the opportunity to be surrounded by fellow Latter-day Saints in a college environment. Bruce had returned a year earlier from having served as a missionary in Uruguay, where he was described by Skip Danes, a Salt Lake City resident who served his Uruguayan mission with Longo, as a missionary of such enormous zeal that he memorized the entire Book of Mormon and kept forgetting to eat. Longo fasted often for further illumination from above. He himself was a convert to the church. Longo was born the elder of two brothers in Yonkers, New York. His father was a well-established doctor in the area, so the family hadn't been hurting for money. But with all of this, Bruce always felt like he was meant for more. His mother was Episcopalian, and his father was Catholic, but neither was particularly religious. From a very young age, Bruce had a gift for convincing people of very extraordinary things. He was never really good at the practical, but he excelled at the fantastical and the fanatical. When examined side by side with one of his contemporaries, his personality traits mirrored those of Jim Jones, who had become the leader of People's Temple in San Francisco. Longo, like Jones, loved the idea that people would listen to what he had to say, and he was very convincing. Longo would later garner followers, as Jones had, but on a much smaller scale. Both of their lives would end in 1978 due to fanatical views, teachings, and paranoia. 
The way in which their lives ended will be discussed in the next episode of Saints and Sinners. Bruce did not perform well in school. In fact, he would regularly show up late and give his teachers wild excuses, convincing them that his father had suffered a broken leg or his family had undergone some terrible crisis. His teachers often believed him. When Bruce was five years old, he ran away from home and even talked a police officer into lending him enough money to take a bus and then a taxi to his grandfather's house in upstate New York. At 17, Bruce joined the army where he was first sent to Korea in the years following the Korean War, and then he returned to the United States and was stationed at Fort Bragg, where he trained as a paratrooper and was introduced by some fellow soldiers to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as the Mormon or LDS Church. He went to church with these fellow paratrooper trainees, and he began to read the Book of Mormon, the text that members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints believe was translated into English from ancient gold plates by Joseph Smith a New Yorker from the previous century. When Longo was discharged from the army in 1959, he returned home to Yonkers, where he told his parents he had some exciting news for them. Bruce had decided to be baptized a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. When last interviewed on the subject, Bruce's mother, Louise Ann Longo, who would go on to live with Bruce's brother, Dean, who was a police officer in Florida when her husband passed away in 1969, stated in reference to Bruce's interest in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that it was the right answer to everything. It was exactly what he had been looking for in his life. But she went on to say that he became fanatical and that he changed so much. After his military and church missionary service and before attending BYU, Bruce lived back at home with his parents and brother Dean for a while in New York. There was friction in the family as Bruce's new religious zeal caused him to often come across to others as self-righteous and abrasive. He insisted that his entire family was doomed to hell because they had not seen the truth of the LDS church. One day, he even looked his godmother in the eye and told her that because she was a non-believer who lacked faith, he was no longer her godson. Bruce had given up smoking and drinking to join the church and he worked hard to plan LDS singles activities for his local branch in Yonkers. He had a book of religious, mostly Mormon quotes that he thought appropriate for every occasion, and he would often share them as advice to others, whether solicited or otherwise. As his religious fervor grew, Longo seemed to lack a certain empathy for others, and would often hurt the feelings of those around him. Many remember seeing in this dynamic a certain dichotomy, how could someone who preached regularly the precepts of Jesus Christ, the epitome of kindness, be so unkind to those in his immediate circle? Bruce eventually proposed to Margaret and the two were married. As the 60s drew on, this new father began to be very controlling toward his wife and he claimed to start having revelations. He said he was meant to one day become a key figure in the church. The couple began to have children. In 1963, their first daughter, Rachel, was born, followed by another daughter, Elizabeth, the following year. And the year after that, their firstborn son, Joshua, was born, at which time Bruce gave young Joshua a blessing that he was to become, at some future date, prophet and president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Word of this man claiming revelations from God was making its way around both in and out of church circles in northern Utah. In an earnest, yet commanding, and often forceful voice, Bruce would tell anyone who would listen 
that he was the son of David the prophet and was himself both prophet and the Holy Ghost incarnate. For making such claims and for not respecting the proper channels by which church leadership is called, Longo was excommunicated by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 1969, at which point he changed his name to Emmanuel David and made claims that a cloud was going to descend upon the Mormon temple in Salt Lake City, a bolt of lightning would split it in half, and the entire building would be consumed by fire. When that didn't happen, David made further claims that he would soon be able to make literal mountains move and said that eventually he would move the entirety of Mount Tippinogus, a Utah County mountain peak and one of the highest and most prominent peaks in the Wasatch Range. He stated he would move the mountains south to Manti, a town in San Pete County, where he would then set up the church once more in preparation for the second coming of Jesus Christ. When the Salt Lake Temple wasn't destroyed and Mount Tippinogus was not moved, Emmanuel David began to fear he would lose followers he was now living in Manti with his family and some close acquaintances, and was a sword maker by trade. He would walk the streets of Manti and threaten non-believers that one day they would lose their heads, whether it be by one of his swords or the sword of the Lord at his second coming. As the David family entered the 1970s, Margaret changed her name to Rachel, a more fitting biblical name, and the family of David, as the burgeoning cult began to be known, gained in followers. They were gaining steam in Utah as Jim Jones and his collection of followers known as the People's Temple were rolling forward and growing thousands of miles to the south in Guyana. In 1978, both cults would lose their leader and the entire country would be utterly amazed at what the pride, control, and self-appointed power of one so supremely in charge could be capable of. They had already seen that in the late 1960s with one Charles Manson. Join me next time as we talk about the 1970s and the extreme views of the Emmanuel David cult, and I talk about my stay in the place where one of the greatest tragedies in the history of the West occurred. I'm Chad Mortensen. Thank you for listening to Saints and Sinners, True Crime and the History of the West. Mm -hmm.